0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. And today I'm really excited about our guest, Tony Marr. He's a storyteller who has spent years captivating audiences with his larger-than-life tales. As an award-winning speaker and storyteller, he has engaged hundreds of audiences across the country with stories of humor and hope and history, from unbelievable adventures that will leave you wondering how he is still alive to the untold stories of American past and scripture. Tony immerses his audiences in an imaginative world that you never want to leave. You can check out his stories and find new chapters of your own story at com. Tony, thanks for being here today. Glad to be here, Stephen. Now, our paths first crossed a number of years ago. I think I was writing a book on uh, that had to do with something in Las Vegas. And you were actually a pastor out in Las Vegas for a number of years. Yeah, I was. I was actually born and raised in Las Vegas and then
0: moved back to Las Vegas after finishing college at Milligan in Johnson City and and moved back to Las Vegas to be a part of a, a new church plant
1: out there. And how does your interest and experience in storytelling, like when I think of a pastor, sometimes I think, man, it might not be the most exciting you know, story to listen to, but how does your passion and interest in storytelling affect, maybe if you're speaking in a church, um, how does it influence the way that you communicate and educate people? Well, I think
0: what what really opened my mind was uh, I had some incredible pastors growing up that, that brought the stories of scripture to life, that it wasn't just uh, theology. It wasn't just doctrine that they were teaching on Sundays. They really opened my eyes to, to the story that God has been writing uh, from the beginning of creation, um, the story, the narrative that has continued on uh, throughout human history. And, and they really showed me that I am a part of that story, that I'm a major part of that story, and that the study of Scripture and the presentation of Scripture. Uh, is just awakening people to that great
1: story uh, that's been told for centuries. So it isn't just about giving information to people or lambasting them or something. It's really drawing them in through some of the principles of being a great storyteller and showing them that they have a part in something bigger than themselves. That's exactly what it is. I think think the the role of
0: a pastor, uh, especially in his, his preaching, teaching role,
1: is to show people their place in the greatest story that's ever been told. Now it's interesting because sometimes when people say, oh, uh, he's telling me a story, they mean he's telling me a lie, he's telling me a fib, he's telling me something made up. And just from our conversation off the air, I remember you mentioning that you were recently in the South Carolina Liars contest. Yeah. So how does that work out if you (laughs) speak at churches sometimes, but also you enter the Liar's Contest? The goal there is just to have interesting and engaging stories, right?
0: Yeah. Well, I came in second. I lost in the South Carolina Liar's Contest, so I'm the second biggest liar in the state of South Carolina. (laughs) Uh, But I lost because they said that my story was too believable, uh,
1: (laughs) that it wasn't extravagant enough. So. As you're crafting and and shaping the stories that you tell, whether it's for a church audience, a liars contest, or a corporate boardroom, because I know you've worked with Fortune 500 companies, what are some of the key elements that you really try to, let's say you're developing a new story, what are some of the key things that you're really keeping in mind as you develop that? My biggest thing is I try to see every angle of the story. Um,
0: I, I try to really look at every Potential character in the story, and what are they seeing uh, try to so in, in in scripture, for example, if I'm looking at a passage of scripture that I'm wanting to tell the story of I don't just look at the central figure, um, be it Noah or Abraham or Peter or Jesus I try to look at all the peripheral characters in the story and some that are maybe so outlandish that no one would ever go there to say what was what was this situation like what would this scene have looked like how would it have unfolded from this perspective from this angle and is there some new insight that I can gather uh, into seeing how the story unfolds from maybe a
1: viewpoint that no one has ever addressed before yeah and it's interesting as an author you know uh, when we're producing uh, an antagonist the bad guy of the story you know, one of the things people have pointed out before is that um, the antagonist is always the protagonist of his own story. He never sees himself as the bad guy. Yeah. And, uh, and so let's say that, you know, you're addressing one of these stories from Scripture, from history, and you have a character, I don't know who, Judas, let's say, who most people would say this guy, you know, is a betrayer. He betrays Jesus and, and um, ends up, works off for it. Let's say that you're telling that story. Do you actually try to climb into his mind and say, what was motivating him? What was, what was he maybe telling himself, justifying himself as he was going through these actions of betrayal? Sure, I would absolutely climb into the mind of Judas and try to
0: see that from his standpoint. First off, you've got to understand that, that Judas, at the time of his betrayal, was a teenager. Um, he was maybe 17, 18 years old at the most. He spent the last three years of his life following something that, following someone that he had this great hope in was going to change his world. His, his initial pursuit of Jesus was thinking that there was going to be something in it for him. That the Jewish people had been waiting for over 2,400 years for this great Messiah to come that was going to restore the nation of Israel to power. And Judas thought he was going to have a front row seat to that. Now it's all crumbling. It's all falling apart. Jesus is going to be dead. It's all going to go, and he's probably going to be captured. And so in his mind, he's thinking, all, everything that I've put my hope and my faith and my trust into, uh, three and a half years of my life, I've just wasted. It's all crumbling right now. I've got to salvage something out of this. Jesus, uh, Judas didn't fully understand the faith in Jesus, and what none of the disciples did at this moment. Yeah. And so Judas is the one who says, I'm going to try to salvage something. I'm going to try to get something out of the last three and a half years.
1: Now, if you were telling that story, and uh, w- no matter where it would be, at a storytelling festival that you sometimes perform at or a corporate boardroom or a church, I think people would be drawn in and say, I never really knew that before. That's information that I didn't know. And, and it helps us empathize with that character, I think, in a kind of a new, different way. Yeah. If I'm telling that story of Judas, I'm probably playing it out that,
0: uh, you know, it was – Earlier in the afternoon, and there was a knock on his door, and he goes to the door, and he opens it up, and there's a a Roman official sitting there, and they have a conversation that would play out. So, of course, the money says, if you give me this much, then I'll tell you exactly where he's going to be. He's lied to me. I was deceived. I was fooled. How am I going to go back home? I'm foolish. I've given up everything to follow this guy, and it was all a scam. That's what Judas is thinking, and, and so he's thinking, I have, to, I have to figure out some way. I'm on my own now. I've lost everything. I'm on my own. Give me something. What can you give me? Five pieces of
1: silver, whatever you can give me, Yeah. and I'll tell you where he's going to be. See? I want to hear the rest of the story now. You did a good job. I like how you climb into the mind and motives of the characters that you're going to be telling the stories about. Um, do you also really think through who your audience is, where they're at and what they're hoping to get out of this? So it isn't just analyzing the characters, but also actually the listeners, the audience. Absolutely. Yeah. You have
0: to have an understanding of what the expectation is of the audience come that's coming to listen to you. Um, what are they hoping
1: to walk away with? I remember, um, telling stories uh, throughout the the years and sometimes I would do seminars on how to uh, how, how to craft and tell stories our, ourselves um, and uh, I always remember telling people think about your audience first and and some people would agree with that some people would say well no your story needs to stand on its own regardless of who's in the audience and stuff but but I think back to one day when my daughter she was probably four years old. And we stopped at a church's um, daycare program, wh- whatever. You could drop your kid off and go for a couple of hours and come back and pick him up, right? So I dropped her off, and a couple of hours later, I come back pick her up. And I said, well, did you have fun? She goes, no. Hmm. I said, well, why not? What did you do? She said, we watched a movie. And I was like, well, that sounds fun. She said, the teacher said, if we moved during the movie, we couldn't have snack. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, what was the movie about? You know what my daughter said? she didn't I don't know. Why didn't she know? Because she was like, focused on that I'm not going to move. That. Yeah. I want snack. And so, you know, having in mind the, uh, like sometimes I've told teachers, there's a big difference between paying attention and sitting still. A lot of teachers will say, sit still when the storyteller's here. Sit still, sit still. Some, some kids can't pay attention while they're sitting still. They have to be, you know, moving and stuff. And, and so with that instance with my daughter, I know that she was so distracted by this desire to get to not lose out on snack that she couldn't focus on anything that was happening. Yeah. Are there things we can do as presenters? I, a, lot, a lot of our listeners might be doing a presentation at, uh, maybe at, at work or a conference or something, and they want some hints and tools, ideas on how to do that more effectively. Are there ways that they can ha- that you can give us to maybe help them climb into understand our audiences a little bit better as we start to develop our material? Yeah, for me,
0: uh, something that that I like to do is really do my homework ahead of time and understand to the best of my ability who's going to be there, what what else is happening while they're there, so that I can understand who's who's coming. But then you have to be flexible. As well, I last week I did a couple of shows in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I tried as much as I could to talk with the organizers of the event about what what can I expect coming in here. What are you wanting as far as uh, performance? I did two 45-minute shows, and uh, okay, content-wise, what are you wanting? And and it was we just want family-friendly. We're really not sure who's going to come, who's going to show up, how many there's going to be, what it's going to look like. And so, in those situations, it makes it tougher. It makes it tough. In in those situations, I had a wide variety of what I could do. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do going in. And then, a lot of artists will spend time backstage, you know, back in another room, clearing their head, getting their thoughts together, going over last-minute things. I like to always be out talking with the audience, talking with the people as they're coming in, um, intermingling with them as they're coming in, getting to know them. Not only does that help me to get an idea of what they're after, what they're coming there for, what they're hoping for. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I met an older couple that was in their 70s that they came because they lived 45 minutes away and they drove to this show. They had no idea who I was, um, but they had come to Jonesboro for the National Storytelling Festival several years in the 80s and they heard that a professional storyteller was going to be in Charlotte and they wanted to relive some of their younger times from the 80s and so they drove 45 minutes to come hear this um, and so i did that put the pressure on you then <laughs> oh it was great I, thinking, I loved like,
1: it like oh no they had better be good
0: <laughs> but but it what that did if i had stayed back in another room someplace and, yeah. and not seen them until i first laid eyes on them with a microphone in front of my face um I would have had no idea where they came from, no clue what they were wanting, what they were looking for. But the other huge benefit is that before I even opened my mouth, I built a rapport with them. Hmm. And there is nothing greater than building a rapport between the speaker and the audience. And I had already built that rapport. I would already won them over, we could say, um, before the
1: show had even started. So let's say at work or at a conference, I need to give a presentation. so a couple of the things I can do is, first of all, think through the audience. Who's there? What's their state of mind? Are, am I speaking right after lunch? Is everybody sleepy, drowsy? Are they going to be excited to see me or bored? You know, sometimes um, uh, when I think about pre- presenting at a conference or event, I like to sneak in to see the person before me yeah. um, to get an idea of, of, you know, if they're engaging or not because if they are not engaging, I know people are going to be thinking, oh, this is dull, and they're going to be in a bad state of mind. And there was a storyteller many years ago, I told stories at a, the Corner Island Storytelling Festival mm-hmm. up in uh, Kentucky, and there was a lady named Jackie Torrance, who was one of the world's yes. best-known yeah. storytellers, and so she was on stage right uh, ahead of me. So I was a young storyteller, and, and she performed, and she did a great job, and I'm thinking, oh, man, now I've got to you know, do well. But... I would rather follow someone who did a good job on stage and people are in a good place and they're like, this is exciting. This is going to be interesting. than have someone who, you know, bombs before you and then you've got to try to dig it. I don't know. What right. about you? I'm right on with you. Yeah. If, if
0: it's been someone bad before you, you're, you're digging out of a hole. Yeah. yeah. They have an expectation that is not a good expectation that you now have to change
1: their mindset. Um, you know, yeah. when we walk up front to go to present, to tell stories, or perform, or whatever term it is people are using for it, everyone in the audience wants the same thing. They all want it to be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? They want yeah. you to, to kill. They want it to be funny or provocative or informative or emotional or whatever. I mean, no one's in the audience thinking, man, I hope this guy is, you know, boring. But yet, within 30 seconds to a minute of someone walking up on stage, people's impressions are already going to be shifting uh, to either thinking, oh, good, this guy is is doing a good job, or they might be thinking, I was afraid of that. This is just not. How do do, I get out of here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what as presenters or storytellers could we do in that first minute or so to reassure people, look, this is going to be worth your time. This is going to be really engaging. I like to do something
0: immediately that will grab their attention, something that they're not expecting, and something that causes them to think. Um, something that they they don't know what's happening, uh, they don't know where this is going, and so they want to scoot to the edge of their seat um, to find out, oh, what's he doing here? Um, and, and so a lot of times that will be starting a thought mid-thought, huh. starting a, an idea with no contrast to the idea um, and giving no context to what I'm saying. Uh, and so I will often start a story. Um, first thing out of my mouth will be, she had this hair, this long blonde hair that flowed, and, and they, what, who am I talking about, what is happening? But immediately people want to know. They want to know
1: yeah. What? who had this hair. Right. What What about the hair? Well, what's happening with the hair? So you really hook their attention right off Yeah. the bat. And you know, a lot of people seem to give the advice, you're supposed to get up and tell a joke. Right. Um, and uh, I remember one time I went to go speak somewhere, and, and I listened to this advice, and I got up and told a joke, and nobody laughed. I, and I was just like, oh, there's this Terrible. And so then I said, I was kind of struggling, like, they weren't laughing, they were just staring at me. And I said, folks, it's been scientifically proven that if you feel like laughing and you don't do it, that laughter will settle down inside of you and widen out your hips. (laughs) And they didn't laugh. And then, I probably shouldn't have said this, but at this point I was just desperate, and I said, and folks, looking around this room, I can see there are a few of you who have not been laughing enough, and they didn't laugh. And I had 45 minutes to go, and from there it just went downhill. And I was like, <laughs> I'm never doing this again. It was terrible. But if you start with a joke and it doesn't fly, you just you just dug yourself. You're done. Yeah. You're done. Big hole. So, yeah. but, but by starting with something that's right in the middle of a thought or a real hook, I like that because then, then you can move on to some humorous things in a minute. But you've got. I've them grabbed right them. Yeah, yeah
0: you, you've grabbed them. Um, I have one the last time, uh, last week that I was performing, and, and I started. on My opening line was, "The shoes were too tight," and people didn't know what do you, What do you mean the shoes are too tight? Um, but it caught their attention. Shoes were too tight, and then I just let it hang there for a minute, and you could see the anticipation, and almost, almost the sense of um, longing for, what do you taught what's next? Yeah, You can't just say that and then leave it. And I didn't leave it for 30 seconds, I left right. it for three seconds, you know, but it was just enough to when I
1: realized that, okay, I've got you now. I've got you now, I'll continue on with the story. Now let's say again that we're one of these presenters and we've said, okay, listening to Tony, I know I need to think through my audience, I need to think through the characters within the story, I'm going to do whatever research I need to beforehand to kind of figure out what state of mind they're in and what they're expecting or hoping for. I'm going to go up and I'm going to do something to grab their attention and to get them on my side and to get that curiosity going. Now, let's think through uh, like a personal story that you might tell. I know we all kind of have jokes that we've heard, but, you know, I think sometimes what's more funny than a joke Is a personal story someone tells where I identify with the characters, and I'm like, I can see that. I can picture that. And then I laugh along with the person. What's your take on that? Do you kind of encourage people to sort of go to jokes or kind of look into their life? And if if you're training uh, some people like at a Fortune 500 company on telling their own stories, what are some of the keys to doing that, to climbing into the stories that we've experienced to actually tell those when we present? Yeah, even –
0: Primarily what I do is personal story. Um, That's primarily what I do. But even a personal story is not about me. It's about the listener. Hmm. And so whether it's on stage at a festival or a conference or it's making a presentation to your coworkers or your board, um, using personal story is not about you. It's helping the listener to see themselves and identify with your story and discover something more about themselves through your ordeal.
1: How do I know which of my ordeals or my past experiences are gonna make a good story for people to listen to? What has moved you?
0: What has changed you? The stories that have changed you and have moved you have shaped you and molded who you are as a person. Um, If you can tell them in the right way, Others will identify with it, and again, they'll see themselves in that story and and hopefully begin to identify a situation in their life that lined up with that story and maybe get a new understanding and realization of their past um, and how they've
1: been molded and shaped by their story from your story. Yeah, I like that. There's identification there, but there's also looking at the things that have shaped and changed us. and uh, as you were sharing that, I was thinking back to when I was in high school. I was super shy. Like my senior year, I barely spoke, especially around girls. I was just super shy. And I hardly ever spoke to girls. But there was this one girl that I liked, right? And so I wanted to – we didn't have um, uh, homecoming dance, but we had sort of like – you would buy a flower for a girl at homecoming, give it to her, and then there was like a meal, and there was special stuff going on at the school, so, so, so on like that. So there's this girl, and I was like, I seriously want to buy her uh, a flower and see if she'll go to the meal with me. So finally I get up enough nerve, and I call her on the phone, and I'm like, hello, <laughs> this is Steve <laughs> from algebra, you know? And um, so finally, we talked to her, and I was like, I was wondering if I could buy you a flower for homecoming. And she's like, okay. I was like, yes! She wants a flower for homecoming. Well, then the next day at school, I started talking to her old boyfriend, and I was like, she likes him still. She doesn't like me. And I got so scared of what would happen that I was like, I never gave her the flower. Hmm. Isn't that terrible? Like, I was so scared that she didn't like me, or she liked him, or I was so embarrassed that I would even have asked her that. That um, here comes homecoming, and I didn't, I didn't buy the flower, and I didn't give it to her, and I didn't speak to her again because I was so scared. And then about a year later, I ran into her at college. She went to the same college that I thought to, and. All I could do was think to apologize and say, I'm so sorry. I was just embarrassed. And and she said, I forgive you. And it was interesting because at first I was thinking, well, you don't have to forgive me or whatever. But (laughs) then I realized that, yeah, I'd hurt her by this thing that I'd done. But over the years, it's just one of those stories that always stuck with me. Like I don't know what the point is. Maybe it's a point about forgiveness or courage or I don't know exactly. But it's one, and whenever I've just told people as a little anecdote about it, all the women are like, I can't believe you're such a jerk, you didn't give her the flop. So it creates these emotions in Pia. Yeah. Um, so it, it immediately does that. Well, that's one of those memories that sort of caught hold of me and, and has been with me all these many years. Um, and if I'm a presenter, what? How could I look at that memory and maybe be like, I wonder if I could use that to somehow tell a story that would engage people? What would be, for you, a couple of the steps to say, okay, I've got this memory, this poignant, clearly it's got emotion involved with it. What's? The, where do we go from there? How did it shape you? Hmm. How, how did that event shape you? I mean, that's a good question. I would probably have to say that, um, it taught me more about confidence, but I don't know exactly. I'd have to think through exactly how it shaped me. But that's the next question you're saying. That's the vital one. Yeah, and I think
0: you look at, again, the same, same process that I take with stories in Scripture. I take with stories been from American history or world history or from personal stories. or And, and that, I look at every possible angle that I can. And so is that kid picking up the phone yeah how did you prepare for that how often did you practice in the mirror oh good practice with the phone unplugged before you picked that up before you finally got the nerve and then what was running through your mind as that phone is ringing and you hear it pick up and say hello and and uh and then you was there a break in your mind in that half a second between she answered and said yes you can buy me a flower and you you thought of all of the all of the ridicule that was going to take place in school the next day when word got out of the rejection that you that you had just undertaken, but yeah. but then something happened that you never thought would happen. Yeah. You said yes. Yeah. And uh, and then what emotions did you feel? What did you see? What did you experience? But now you have but now you have a dilemma. Now you have another conflict. That what kind of flower are you going to get her? What is Uh, And you only have, do you have to have it by tomorrow morning? What needs to happen? And so now you've created this whole new adventure of of what's going to happen and getting that and and this whole other story within the story. And then the moment, the buildup, that you're ready to sweep her off your feet, and and there's going to be, you've got visions of your wedding bells and and grandkids coming and visiting around the Christmas tree later on, and you turn the corner in the locker hall and give her the rose, and she's talking, and all of a sudden the rose will. And for me, the greatest compliment that I can get after I've told a story Absolutely, hands down, the greatest compliment I can get is when someone comes up and tells me, you know, that happened to me too. Oh, nice. And, and it, often it has it's nowhere close to the story I just told, but they had identified it with something in their life. It sparked a memory in them that now they wanted to share. Then I know that was successful. That was great. It did exactly what I hoped it would do. It got someone thinking about their story and it got someone reflecting and meditating on their life
1: and their story and their place and their meaning. So that's good. Tapping into poignant memories, trying to identify how they have shaped or changed us. So as I think about that story, it could be a story about the crippling nature of fear. It could be a story of what will people think of me. It, you know, It could be a story about forgiveness. It could be maybe any of those depending upon the context and how the story is, is told um, and I have the feeling that people would identify because either they've been the girl who gets this phone call or they've been the boy the girl feels rejected the guy's nervous or whatever it is we can all kind of find a place in that you know in that story so I keep thinking back to our person who's going to present and he's looking at the audience he's looking at his own life he's finding these these moments now for you Tony what When you're telling a personal story, do you go through, is it important for you that the character changes somehow or grows or learns something? Or do you just look at maybe the context of the humor of the event? What what are you really hoping to build the story around? I don't always
0: think that the story has to resolve. Um, it, It doesn't always have to resolve. It doesn't have to wrap up pretty. Um, because sometimes life doesn't wrap up pretty. Yeah. Um, and sometimes the greatest growth that we have is in the pain and the brokenness. And the things for those listening, the story doesn't always, their story doesn't always wrap up pretty. And so if my story has a happy ever after to it, for those that didn't, maybe they've just lost. Maybe I've just lost them. Mm-hmm. Um, because their story didn't end that way. Uh, maybe their story is still playing out, and, and it hasn't resolved for them yet. So the story doesn't always have to resolve, but I always want um, my, my two goals, that any time I'm getting ready to tell a story, uh, getting an opportunity to speak, um, my, my life mission as an artist is that I want to help you to discover your story and your place in the larger story that's being told. Um, And so whether or not the story resolves with a happily ever after, uh, my goal is that and my hope is that at the end you have a deeper understanding of who you are and you have a deeper understanding of your place in the larger story of humankind.
1: That's good And, and I feel like as we tell stories from our lives, sometimes someone will say, oh, you'll never believe what happened to me, and they'll tell me a story. And it feels like it's being told for their benefit instead of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I maybe, I maybe listen and, and I try to be engaged by it and so on, but, but then there are also times where I feel like a great or gifted speaker is telling a story and it isn't for his benefit, but it's for mine, and there's a huge difference, I think, in the dynamic of being a listener, feeling like you're playing the role of a therapist <laughs> in the one hand and the other hand where you're just like you feel like you're being honored uh, by this by the storyteller yeah I, I obviously you
0: want to entertain your audience yeah you, you want them you want them to leave feeling like the investments maybe only of their time, but maybe of their money, uh, uh, that their investment was worth it. But it's so much more than just being entertained. Um, I don't want to just be an entertainer. Now, there are some people that that all they want to do is entertain, and they do a great job of entertaining, and there's value and worth in entertainment um, that people leave feeling good. Uh, But for me, I, I want you to walk away like I said, with a deeper
1: understanding of who you are. So entertained, also inspired, and um, and maybe more reflective, it almost sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Are there any secrets that you've picked up over the years for using humor? I know everybody loves, you know, a humorous uh, story or illustration. Um, and, you know, one time I remember doing some... I studied improv for a little while. Mm -hmm. And the guy who was teaching improv, one of the things that he said, I always remember, um, he said, if you're improvising on stage and something happens, don't ask yourself, Will this be funny? Ask yourself, is this true? Mm -hmm. And his whole approach to comedy improv was that it has to be true. That the people who try to be funny on stage and to try and grab a laugh, maybe they get a laugh or maybe they don't, but the ones that persevere, the really strong improvisers and comedians are asking themselves how is this true, not how is this funny? Hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I... I it's a great thought. With me, I always tend to have a a nugget of truth, and then I embellish that truth. Sure. And and that's where I get, that's where I find that I connect the most with humor with my audience is is when I it's truth, but I embellish that truth. An exaggerated truth. It's an exaggerated yeah. truth. But it always I always start with the truth. Yeah. I always completely start with the one hundred percent truth, and over the course of the
1: story, that truth becomes exaggerated. There's this one story that I sometimes tell about my first grade teacher, Mrs. Beale. I can't remember if, in our conversations if I've ever brought her up to you. But I, when I tell the story, I sometimes say, I still remember my first grade teacher, Mrs. Beale. She was 900 years old when I met her. And people just smile and nod. And, and they know she wasn't 900 years old. But immediately they have a picture of Mrs. Beale, yeah. first grade teacher. Yeah. Um, and so it's not a joke. I'm not trying to get people to chortle, and I just want them to sort of smile and be like, oh, "Okay, I had a teacher like that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have a story that I tell of about
0: me. You talked about your date. Uh, yeah. Uh, of when I was in high school, From my non-date, taking my dream girl that I never thought I had a chance with, taking her on a date, and finally getting her to say yes to a double date. And so after. After gut-wrenching thoughts of what am I going to do, she said yes, surprised me and said yes, and now what am I going to do to take her on a date that will woo her, win her over, and have her fall madly, deeply in love with me? Um, I decided to take her to a minor league baseball game. And uh, uh, growing up in a city like Las Vegas, there's not a whole lot to do on a Friday night, and so most of the town goes to this minor league baseball game. So I start off with the truth. And yeah. on this Friday night, there were probably about 4,000 fans at this game. Huh. And then the next time I talk about it, there were 8,000 fans. Yeah. And, and so people, the audience says, last time you said there were four. Right. And then the next time I say it, uh, the, the story is I go out on the field to be yeah. a part of a seventh-inning stretch activity and make a complete fool of myself in front of her. And, and, uh, and so each time that I address the crowd and the story, it grows until by the end there's 250,000 people that are (laughs) on their feet chanting my name and laughing in mockery at me at my expense. And, uh, And every time I tell that story, I have people come up and say, Oh, you said 4,000, then it was 8, and then you said 12, and then 15, and it took me until you got to 70,000 people that I realized there weren't really 70,000 people, and by the time I get to 200,000 people, every time I say it, the place erupts in laughter. Hmm. Um, Because they realized that that's what it looked like. In my mind, that's what it felt (laughs) like. Exactly. Yes. Even though there were only 4,000 people there, it felt like there were 200,000 people that were
1: all eyes on me, looking at me, and...
0: The, the laughing. Yeah, and when
1: we tell our stories, um, I think and that's a good example of how through the story people kind of catch hold and say, Oh, he's exaggerating, it's through his eyes like this. Um, it isn't something necessarily that you say, but it's the way that you tell the story. And I think humor has a lot to do with that, and also meeting people's expectations of you know the amount of truth that we contain in the story to match that up with the amount that people are expecting from the story. Hmm. So like if you were at one of the churches speaking that you've, you've been to over the many years, uh, you might start telling a story and people are probably going to expect, it's probably, probably pretty true. Here's the preacher telling a story, but then you get up at one of your liars contests or a storytelling festival and you start a story. I think by the way that we tell it, you know, we, adjust those people's expectations you know if I was at the church and I said I need to tell you about an experience that I had last week while I was camping people are going to think this is probably pretty true right but if I'm sitting around the campfire and I say I got to tell you about last week when I met a 12 foot bear now people are like okay okay I don't know if there was really a 12-foot bear, but this is going to be a tall tale or something like that.
0: And and it also makes a huge difference on the the relationship and the rapport that you have with the audience. Uh, I have a story that I tell about uh, a situation that happened in the church when I was growing up as a little boy. And my best friend and I just doing some mischief at a church lock-in, a youth (laughs) lock-in. And I've told that story from a pulpit on a stage on a Sunday morning in front of people that knew me, or at least knew me as you're here as a pastor, you're sure. here as a minister who's telling this story, and the story killed. It was great. It was yeah. it was hilarious because they, they all gave me permission to tell that story from an understanding of who I was in my background. Yeah, I told that story last year at a storytelling festival. Um, where nobody knew me, no one had any idea who I was and the, the, the response and feedback that I got afterwards is people were offended by the story because they felt that I was, um, irreverent, uh, in the and, story. And truthfully, it's probably the exact opposite. Exact opposite. <laughs> but they thought, because in the story, we were in middle school, and we snuck into the communion prep room overnight and spiked communion with Tabasco sauce. <laughs> and, uh, and so to people who know me and know that Tony's a pastor, Tony, yeah, yeah. Tony didn't do anything maliciously to to harm and disgrace the holy sacrament of communion, No, right. he was a, a kid, but an audience who didn't know me had no clue that I spent 20 years as a pastor, sure. they were offended huh. by the story that I told, that was one of the lessons that I learned, that always know
1: your audience and That's know true. the rapport that you have with them. Now, before we close up, let's say that a person is doing these presentations and they've kind of tapped into some of the emotion of their life. They've maybe found a place to exaggerate for humor. How do we wrap up a story, like uh, a presentation or something, in a way that really locks home maybe what we were talking about or that's emotional for the people um, without manip- manipulating them, but also leaves them really feeling like, man, I, w- I wish I could get more of that. What Are there any keys that you've sort of discovered over the years for for shaping and wrapping up your programs?
0: Again, I think that you have to to know what your desired outcome is, and it doesn't always have to resolve. Is your desired outcome that you want to give them the answer, or is your desired outcome that you want them to come up with their own answer? Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you want to solve the equation for them? Or do you want them to leave questioning and thinking and stewing on what does this mean? What is the point of this? What is the purpose of this? What was that all about? And I think there's, there's times and places for both. But you have to clearly identify what is your desired outcome? What do you want people
1: thinking in their mind when they walk out? I've heard some storytellers in person and they just did an amazing job. And they sort of ended in a way where everyone just rises and applauds, gives a standing ovation. But one of these guys I saw do a TED Talk one time. And it was like people didn't seem to know how to respond to him. Um, and I think he really knew his audience for the storytelling event like because he does festivals all over all the time. And so it felt like he really knew. But when he was doing the TED Talk, maybe the audience was different. And the way that he ended, they sort of gave him gentle, polite applause, like he didn't do terrible or anything. But when I watched the TED Talk, I thought, now if he were doing that exact same thing at one of these festivals, I feel like people would just be on their feet applauding. So the context has a lot to do with, with it like you said. So understanding our audiences, understanding why they're there, what we're trying to accomplish, all of those I think are really good you know, hints no matter what type of story it is we might be telling. Um, have you found that the same principles of great storytelling apply for you when you're telling a personal story as well as maybe a historical story? Because uh, I know that you do some historical ones as well as scriptural ones but I also know that you're very funny when you do a lot of the personal material. Do you see like a certain pattern that all stories follow, or don't you think of it in those terms?
0: I don't really think of it in those terms. I think of it as um, even if it's a, a historical story from you know World War II. Yeah. I'm working on some World War II stuff right now. That again, I say, where do I find myself in this story, and where do I want my listener to find themselves? and identify,
1: and what do I want them walking away with? Well, that's excellent, and we want our listeners to find you as well. So, Tony, where is the best place online to either match up with your when you might be performing or to follow your careers, see when your next uh, uh, festival might be? Uh, my
0: website is TonyMarr.com, T-O-N-Y-M-A-R-R.com.
1: And that your schedule is on there and Sherry sure can relate yeah. to you and contact you through there. So if you're listening and you have a business or a conference that you're looking for a speaker for, or maybe you um, need someone to do a training event, contact Tony and uh, he'll be glad to come and uh, and help you tell better stories yourselves. So thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, Tony, for being here. It was a great conversation. And Uh, Thanks for tuning in to the Story Blender. Uh, My website is stephenjames.net, and you can check out some of the conferences that I speak at at storyconferences.com. And, folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.